0: Hello and welcome to Ditching Hourly, I'm Jonathan Stark. Today I'm joined by value pricing expert, Ed Kless. Ed is the author of The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business in the Knowledge Economy, which is a compendium of a few of the episodes of his Voice America talk show, The Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy with co-host Ron Baker. Ed is a contributor to industry publications including the Journal of Accountancy, Harvard Business Review and HR.com and has spoken at many conferences worldwide on project management, pricing, and knowledge workers. He's also active in the Information Technology Alliance and was named to Accounting Today's list of the 100 most influential people in accounting for 2015. Ed, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks so much for having me, Jonathan.
0: Can you start by telling folks a little bit about who you are and what you do?
1: Sure. And that's that's actually a, a more difficult question than a lot of people suspect, because I work for a software company, Sage, but... I don't have much to do specifically with our software for the last 14 years i've been involved in helping our business partners which include people who resell our software people who recommend our software through say the sage accountants solutions group and then also people who write custom programs that work with our our, our stuff so the isv community I've been really helping them make their businesses better so my, my, while I work for a software company, I don't, I don't do software. Of course, I am still responsible for everything technical that goes wrong in my house.
0: So that's just a side. <laughs> <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> so what we're going to talk about today is value pricing, of course. And mm-hmm. you are um, part of an organization called Verisage. Could you tell people the who... Veris the Verisage Institute. Yes. Yeah, you...
1: I'm a, I'm a senior fellow at the Verisage Institute, which was a think tank started by my friend and, and co-host of our, our radio show, The Soul of Enterprise, Ron Baker. And he started the think tank, ooh, probably 15 years ago, I think now, maybe a little bit longer. And I was one of the first people... Who he, he invited in uh, the it, Ron is a pretty interesting guy. He you know he always wanted to have a think tank, so he just started one, <laughs> and that you know that's the kind of guy he is. And and we the Verisage Institute is is yes Ron does consulting under that banner, but for the most part, it's about really giving away our intellectual property because we so strongly believe that the only place that time spent should matter is in prison. <laughs> And we want to bury the billable hour and the timesheet in all of the professions across all sectors. So accountants, lawyers, uh, IT people, custom software developers, uh, architects, uh, do- doesn't matter, advertising agencies. We, 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 th- we think it's a, it's a really bad model, and it, it does it's actually harmful to the, the people who, who practice it.
0: Yeah, we're, I share your mission, certainly. So our, hourly billing – is one thing. The Mm -hmm. timesheet is one thing. Value pricing, would you, is it fair to say you'd call that an alternative or is it, is it just one alternative? Do you think that is there, are there certain things that don't lend themselves well to be being value priced?
1: Uh, No, because I really, there's, there's only two really main, let's call them pricing, um, they're not strategies because there are actually three strategies, but there's methodologies. There are there are two two major pricing methodologies that are out there. One is cost led pricing, and the other is value led pricing. So it it really is a it is it's an either or choice. You really can't do both. You've got to pick one or the other. And s- simply put, a a value price. Or a value-led price, or some people call it a a price on purpose, which is Ron Baker's preferred term because he has a book on that subject. But uh, it it is really – let me just define it. It's a price in which the primary but not sole determining input into the price is the perceived value of the customer. So that's really the key. Whereas cost-led pricing is where obviously the cost, your internal cost, is is the, the primary, but again not sole determining input into the price. Now, oftentimes with cost-led pricing, it it is actually the sole determining thing. But um, and th- those are just the two different the pricing methodologies. And I'm a big advocate of the, the former, right? This, this notion that we have to understand what the perceived value of the customer is first. Um, in fact, I've got, I've got a blog post out there. And if you want to link to it in your show notes, I'd be happy to send it to you. But it, sure. it, it basically comes down to this. It, without, without a value conversation, without being able to have a conversation with a prospective customer about their perceived value, you cannot value price because one presupposes the other. Yes. Totally agree.
0: So how does that translate into say a, a product though? So is a, is a Coke in a convenience store value priced or could it be,
1: uh, you know, it's Coke is an interesting example. Let's take a, let's take a slightly different example, but, but I think it's right along the lines of what you're talking about. Let's take, um, what is it, Aquafina or Dasani? I forget. Whatever, whatever the the brand of Coke is without the sugar and syrup and everything else in it. But it's you know it's out it's put out by Coke. I think it's I think it's uh, Dasani. Okay, so th- that bottle of water is you would say w- in a convenience store. It's funny that you mentioned that. Yes, you pay actually more for that bottle of water in a convenience store than you pay for it if you buy it at Sam's Club. Y- you pay more for a bottle of water at a you know, a tennis match or at a baseball game or, or wherever, same quantity of water than you would for the same quantity of water. If you're home doing the dishes or washing your dog, the same co- quantity of water that's part of a flood in your basement actually has negative value. So th- that's a, it's, it's actually a good example of this notion that, that price is contextual Right. The price that someone is willing to pay for something is not based on a subtotal of all of the costs that roll up into it, but rather the perceived value and the perceived value can actually change significantly depending upon the context in which the thing is purchased. So even something like a product, it it is is the price is still contextual. And so so people say, well, you know, they they try to use. Well, now I get it for a commodity. But what about the stuff that I do? Well, the stuff that you do is also insanely contextual because something that you do for one customer might have a value of, say, $500 to customer A, but it might have a value of $50,000 to customer B, the same work. And so it's, this, it's the same notion is that that price is, is, is contextually based on a couple of things, but but primarily the the, the perceived value at the particular time.
0: Gotcha. So when, but when you're not having, so when the price is set without talking to the customer, how do you determine the value in their mind?
1: Right. And this is, so, so again, if, if we're talking about products that are commercially available, that are, that have, uh, uh, you, that you're looking to get hundreds or maybe even millions of people to, to buy, you know, a 99 cent download of an app on, iTunes, right, mm-hmm. or the App Store, exactly. Um, that that that's that is that's called menu pricing, right? Where what you're trying to determine is you're trying to figure what the average uh, value across the board is. Now, uh, I, I would submit that that f- people who are doing custom development never. Are in that context because they're always having a one-on-one conversation with the person that they're trying to develop a solution for, but if you're trying to develop ha- have something that's that's commercially available, then yes, you probably need to try to determine uh, the price, but that doesn't change the the strategy that one would use to do that, which is is still I think to develop different. Choices around that product so that the the customer can pick the, the right context for it
0: Gotcha. Yes, so one of the I'll just sort of tack on that one of one of the most interesting things I ever read about Pricing I believe it was in Reed Holden's book, but it could have been Ron's Was that price affects cost? Where to yes, me, that's wild <laughs> because you know people just assume <laughs> that co- cost is the fixed thing and i think that is sort of part of the seductive nature of cost plus is that you feel like your costs are known but they're not and and yep. setting a price differently can actually affect your costs can you elaborate uh, elaborate that so people understand
1: this is such an important point jonathan so, i mean absolutely critical to the understanding this is this is the uh, there's a great video out there, uh, out there called the backward bicycle where the, I don't know if you've seen this, where yes. they turn the handlebars left and the wheel goes right. But mm-hmm. this, this is the thinking that one has to fully understand in order to, to do this really well. And that is, is that uh, if you are value pricing, you have to really get rid of the notion that, that price does not come from your costs, but rather price justifies the future expenditure of cost and that is really the critical notion there's a story that Ron my uh, radio partner tells uh, about uh, going to a, a winery that that's near him he lives in in Petaluma but a, there's a it's a I think it's Napa Valley based wine called Farniente uh, Farniente by the way is Italian for do nothing which is <laughs> a great name for a winery um <laughs> Right. So anyway, Farniente has this uh, this special a state bottled cab, you know, a reserve cab that they put out. Now, most of their stuff is pretty expensive. It's only available either at the winery or in California. Rare do you really do you see it outside of California? But the, their reserve Cabernet is is, is and it, it's billed as a state bottled. It's like three times the price of any of their other stuff. Like their average price it might be thirty to fifty dollars a bottle, but this stuff is you know three hundred or two hundred two seventy five something astronomical. And, and Ron really loves it. Anyway, he was on a tour of Farniente and with, with a, a bunch of folks and he was talking up this estate bottle Cabernet and they finally get to the, the place in the catacombs where they're fermenting the, 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 this vintage. And the tour guide makes this big point about, you know, this is the estate bottle Cabernet that Mr. Baker was talking about earlier. And uh, I want to explain to you why this wine is so expensive. So he says, "Well, because th- th- this is a very delicate wine," he says, "and it bruises easily." I, mean, <laughs> I didn't know you could bruise liquid, but whatever. Um, so it bruises easily. As a result of that, because that we have to hand bottle every single bottle, we can't roll these these casks up to our automated process, or I guess they ship them out. But that they they, 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 they where so we have to hand bottle each one. Um, we have to have a special corking mechanism so as not to bruise the wine and put the foil on it. If we ship this to you, you get two cases of six instead of one case of 12 because we have to add extra padding to it so it doesn't bruise, right? So there's this big, whole elaborate story about, about this. And he says, and he finishes by saying, and that's why this wine is more expensive. Well, for the advocates of, of, of cost plus pricing, they're like, well, yeah, makes total sense, right? They have to put more labor in in order to, to make this happen. But th- that, that is to get it exactly backwards. The, 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 the reason why they get you know $300 a bottle for this is because wine geeks like Ron Baker are willing to pay that, right? Mm-hmm. So because Ron, Ron values the wine more than 300 bucks a bottle, so he's willing to pay more for it. And therefore, as a result... Of that, Farniende can justify the costs of bringing in the extra laborers in order to be able to hand bottle this wine, mm-hmm. right? So the, it's the arrow of causation that that people need to understand. What what I find most <laughs> interesting about this is that at cost plus pricing is actually a derivative of what's called the labor theory of value, mm-hmm. right? It's an economic theory that was put forward in 1857, I think, by a German economist. He says, look, the value of stuff is equal to the subtotal of all of the labor that it took to put the thing together. Well, it sounds pretty much like, you know, the hourly pricing to me, right? Um, yeah. it's a, so it's the same the same notion. Um, of course, this economist's name was Karl Marx, <laughs> Right. So when one bills by the hour, you are a practicing Marxist, <laughs> right? Because you're using his theory in order to set your price. Now, what's weird and where, where you start to see like the real trouble come in is Karl Marx did not think that value was evil, right? He was, he, he was good with economic value. He understood that, right? What did Karl Marx think was evil? Well, Profits. profit. <laughs> He thought profit. So, okay, so here we are trying to use a guy's theory who thought profit was evil, yet we're trying to then take that theory and use it to maximize our profitability. Well, I can tell you why it doesn't work, because <laughs> it's not in alignment.
0: <laughs> yeah. In, in fact, that leads to one of the other huge revelations that, uh, that I, I've gotten from following you guys. Uh, and I think it comes out of the subjective theory of value, which is that in a transaction, both parties profit, not just the one that received the dollars. So yep. that is a game changer. Could you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yeah, sure. And uh, yeah, this is uh, th- this is a great conversation because we've hit on the, the in my opinion, the two the top two business myths. The first business myth is that price is based on cost, right? The second one is that that um, that transactions that that uh, that that, we, that it's it's an, that business is a zero sum game. Mm-hmm. Right. That we're we're exchanging like for like, and and I blame the accountants for this because they're the ones who have this you know debits equal credits theory of life, right? And a debit on somebody's books is a credit on somebody else's books, and therefore it's all even out. And if you go back to the movie Wall Street, there's a famous scene where Gordon Gecko and and Bud uh, Charlie Sheen's character are are talking in his office. It's not the greed is good speech, but he he said it. But 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 uh, Bud says, how many yachts can you walk? Ski behind, Gordon. How much is enough? And Gecko says it's not a question of an en- enough, pal. It's a zero sum game. Wealth isn't created or destroyed; merely transferred from one perception to the other. It's like magic, right? And this—this this is while this is a great movie, and Oliver, Oliver Stone is a fantastic director. He's a lousy economist. Um, <laughs> because what he doesn't understand is that that is that is so far from the truth. Value is created on both sides of the transaction. In fact, the word transaction, trans means beyond, right? Transcontinental, right? Mm-hmm. So tr- it so it's it, it's it means beyond the action, right? Beyond the action of what's going on there is value. So when I buy a cup of coffee at Starbucks for, you know, $3.80 or whatever it is, it means that I want that cup of coffee more than the three dollars and eighty cents, and guess what? Starbucks wants the wants my money, my three dollars and eighty cents more than they want their cup of coffee. So they benefit, they profit from that. We understand that, but I also profit now, not necessarily in terms of financial. Like I can't come in. Well, I would have valued at four dollars or whatever, but but in pleasure, right? And, and this is why the the great understanding is that that value not only is subjective, but but value goes beyond even the possibility of full economic measurement because we 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 can't we can't fully measure we don't we don't have like an internal like hedon thing that we have in our heads. All right, well I'll exchange you know three dollars and eighty cents for four hedons, right? We don't like pleasure things. We don't have that, but um, but yet we do make these choices all of the time because we want something more than the the amount of money. So we profit as well. Now, sometimes it is economic profit. Sometimes, especially in a business transaction, you can say, yes, because we spent $100,000 in software, we were able to, you know, increase our sales or profit or whatever by 300,000. So sometimes you can measure it, but not always.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I tell a story about two kids, you know, Alice and Bob, Alice has a green balloon, Bob has a red balloon and uh, they both like the other color better. So they trade. And mm-hmm. in, in when money's not involved, it's obvious that both parties are benefiting. Beca- and, and it's obvious that the benefit is the sort of subjective heat on, if you will. It's kind of mm-hmm. like, it's just, they're happier. They're happier after they mm-hmm. trade the balloons. So the, the thing with money, I think, is that since it's got numbers on it, it feels like math, but it's really not math. And it's really mm-hmm. psychological. <laughs> so like yeah. every, $10 is not worth the same to you as it is to me, but everyone's $10 is worth the same to me so mm-hmm. it, it creates this abstraction that allows us to trade more easily because you might not have something i want to trade for my red balloon uh, but right. or for the coffee you know it maybe you know starbucks doesn't take chickens in exchange for coffee <laughs> so the the thing that's that would be wild but
1: well it would be it would be such a pain in the butt right because you're a software developer you'd have to if you wanted bacon and eggs for breakfast you'd have to find a pig farmer and a chicken farmer who wanted software
0: (laughs) sure it'd be like if there wasn't one one currency in the united states and everybody had well like oh i don't take well this is actually kind of happening like you see people paying each other in amazon gift cards instead of money for whatever reason but regardless the the i think the thing that makes it feel different than the balloon example i think the money thing is that people tend to think of it as an absolute when in fact it's a good, it's not technically the word good is the wrong thing, but it's, it's, uh, it's something, it makes me happy to have this $10,000, but it'd make me happier to have this new website. So you make the new website, I'll give you my $10,000 and assuming that everybody does what they're supposed to do at the end of it, I'm going to be much happier than having $10,000 in the bank.
1: Yeah, and let me just—I just add because this uh, this something comes up all the time. I I hear people quoting, or actually misquoting, their they're not misquoting. They're 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 selectively quoting scripture when they say, uh, "Money is the root of all evil," right? And what they're missing is the, the 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 first part of the phrase, which is "Love of money is the root of all evil." And what that was is a a a warning against materialism, right? Mm. And putting people before things. But the, the, very, the very notion of money has changed in 2,000 years, and the, the, what, money is just, uh, the, as you said, a medium of exchange, right? It's just it, – I, I think of the money that one has in the bank as the certificates of deposits for a job well done. Um, I've been at Sage for 14 years, and they continue to pay me every two weeks because guess what? They, uh, they value what I have more than the money that they pay me, mm-hmm. right? And that's not exploiting me. Right, <laughs> that's right? <laughs> not exploiting me. They value what I have more, and that's great because so then I can then I could so then I can take the money that I have and you know buy tickets to the Texas Ranger playoff game like I did this morning. So nice.
0: So <laughs> let's loop back to the wine story for a second because you you mentioned that yep. I, I think there's a nuance in that story that would be of interest to listeners, which is that the 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 winery presented that story about the laborious creation and shipping of those those bottles of wine that particular kind of wine mm-hmm. I, and i 100 percent agree that that doesn't mean you know that like wow this was really hard for us to do therefore you should pay us 300 I, that i agree that that's absurd and anybody who tries mm-hmm. to just arbitrarily set their prices insanely high will find that it's true you can't just arbitrarily set your prices really high but i i do think and this gets into the application of some of these theories that telling that story increases the value in Ron's mind. So knowing that all of that, that care went into the production and knowing that he's got that story to tell other people when he serves that bottle that Hmm. increases, I would be willing to bet that if that story, if he didn't know that story, Because there's a lot more into the, the experience, especially of a wine. Wine's a great example. There's a lot that goes into that experience beyond taste. And it's been, it's, there have been numerous studies where, um, even sommeliers in a blind taste test are not that great at picking out the more expensive bottles. Right. If you, so if you isolate it down to just the flavor, Ron's not paying for the flavor, just the flavor. I am willing to bet. I mean, he he went on a tour. It would be a fun conversation to have actually, but it doesn't. So, so, but the, so I just wanted to make that point, but the- well,
1: yes, yes, I think, no, I think I, you, ha, you, but here's the thing. Ron was willing to pay for the wine before he even knew the story. So there's, so, so there's that, but okay. I will say this is that the story certainly enhances it, it after the fact, um, because, and I do think that this is true because, uh, and, and I'm sure you've seen some Rory Sutherland videos where he talks about yes. this. You know, mar- marketing itself can actually create the perception of value. Yes, absolutely. And that, that is a huge – a uh, thing that that most even hard business people do not understand, and of course, uh, if you just just search, you know, Rory Sutherland and Shreddies, right, to 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 see the the best example of, of this, which is the 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 change in value based on literally the position of this cereal on the box, and. Uh, the, the fact that marketing itself is a way to create value, hard business, hard long time, hard business people would, would sometimes vehemently disagree with this. But, Mm -hmm. um, I I think it's, I think it's very true. So that is a nice segue into a
0: topic that I'm faced with uh, often when talking about value pricing and I'd love to get your response to this objection. Uh, it's, it, it basically amounts to when I start to describe it or I give people an idea of, you know, it's they hear like, oh, you have to base your price on what it's worth to the customer. They often jump to, um, oh, well, that's just gouging or uh, that oh. is a shake huh. shakedown, you know, and and it's it takes me when it first started happening, it really took me by surprise because in my opinion, value pricing is by far the most client friendly Uh, it's certainly compared to hourly billing where you don't even give them a price and they have to make this huge purchasing decision without even having a fact to Mm -hmm. base their decision on. And by the time they find out you're bad at estimates, it's way too late and they've got a choice between killing the project that's halfway done or spending twice as much as they expected. So, so, you know, for someone to then say, oh, well, well, you know, folks, I believe you're one of them would say that hourly billing is beyond bad. It's actually unethical, uh, but and immoral and immoral <laughs> and the devil's work. <laughs> I, I really, I would, well, I would no, love just to,
1: Marx, just the work of Marx.
0: <laughs> there, there you go. So it's, uh, it's, um, it's weird to have that sort of accusation pointed at what I think is the, the, the solution <laughs> Do so do you, do you face that? And if you do, how do you respond to that?
1: yeah I, I i faced that for a long time and look there the, there's we do have to understand the full context of what's going on see what and I, and i and i do i do understand their initial argument because they they're not They don't have the full context around what we're talking about, Mm -hmm. right? So they're they're just seeing you as setting a price that is in alignment with the value of the customer, and you know that everything be damned. No, there's more to it than that. One of the key elements, in fact, we have a a list on the the Verisage website of of professional organizations across all sectors that adhere to three principles: one, value led pricing two the elimination of timesheets but the third and i think one of the, and the equally important member of the triad is a 100% money back guarantee
0: ah nice <laughs> right? the,
1: those are the those are the three key elements we believe that are required to do that now th- this that having that guarantee completely eliminates the gouging notion it, mm-hmm. it, because I'm, I'm giving the customer the ability to pull the trigger on a, guar- on a price guarantee, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm giving them the trigger. So to, to say that. Now, I will also say this, that your point is also critically important, is how is it moral to not set a price and begin doing work for someone when you don't know what the final price is going to be? right the mm-hmm. that that it, the final price may in fact be m- more expensive than the problem that it's going to fix or right?
0: worse you don't even the problem's not even defined and they just give you a punch list of
1: tasks that's
0: that's correct yeah
1: that's that's correct and so th- th- to me that's the immoral piece of it is that, you know, I, I, it, I, I do believe in the Hippocratic Oath and, you know, the way it's, it's in Latin, it's primum non nusare, which is at first do no harm. And that applies uh, to all professional organizations, not just doctors. Well, if, if you don't know what the value is, uh, if, if you haven't helped the customer explore what their perceived notion of the value is, I think to begin any work is unethical because you don't know if you're causing more harm than good. Absolutely. Right?
0: Yeah, I mean, you're preaching so to the choir with me. <laughs>
1: that, that, so that's that's the key. The other thing is on on the it, on this is if you set your price up front, your customer has the ability at that point to reject your price. That, so what we're we're talking about here is capitalistic relations between consenting adults, <laughs> right?
0: <laughs> Uh, that's, yeah, a, that's a new I'm, one. I haven't heard that one.
1: Yeah, we're, we're 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 the customer is making a choice up front, knowing everything, whether or not to to pay a price or not. Like, and, and this is another big thing. When when do you want to know that your customer object or your prospective customer objects to your price before you begin the work or after? Mm-hmm. It's a no-brainer. Of course, before. Of course, before.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so I can see we're getting close to time, but I wanted to, to wrap up with, um, a, a kind of a rando question. So sure. I could be, I could have misheard this, but I believe I heard you one time say that in the future, all things will be valueless. <laughs> the, the Star Trek future.
1: Yeah. The Star Trek future. I, I, no, I And, you know, this is this, this is one of the things the musings in my mind as I project this stuff out. Um, the, and I don't know when, you know, this is certainly decades, if not centuries, maybe even millennia from now. But as, as we continue to progress in, in what uh, economist Deirdre McCloskey calls this period of the great enrichment, and if it continues, which, you know, some some would argue that it's not going to. But um, at, at, at some point, um, it, that, it, it, certainly, money—the so medium of exchange—it there will be no need for it because everything will be so valued that we be gone. You know, everyone will have enough to eat already. There won't there won't be a a concern or worry about that. That I just I just think that the notion of having to exchange a medium will go away. I think there would mm-hmm. still be value, but I think we'll be we'll be down to a red balloon blue balloon total economy
0: yeah back more to a trade style now with that third yeah. that, that that third thing the, without the bank involved basically
1: yeah yeah and you know may, you know maybe that's that's beginning to come through f- to fruition to things like you know bitcoin and stuff which is is a fascinating topic but mm-hmm. uh and and certainly worthy of another podcast but uh yeah it, 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 yes i did say that and i yes i do think that that is possible that as we project forward things the 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 the, the our st- standard of living if you will will be so high across the board that it won't matter gotcha it won't matter
0: well ed thank you so much for coming on this has been amazing
1: well, I'm, I'm happy to be on. Thanks so much for having me, Jonathan.
0: If you'd like to learn more about Ed, you can visit his blog at e d k l e s s E-D-K-L-E-S-S.com or on Twitter at edclass, E-D-K-L-E-S-S. That's it for this week. See you next time. Hey, Jonathan, again, do you have questions about how to improve your business?